Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Canadian Story. My name is David Parker. I'm here with Zach Gerber, my co-host, and we hey. have the lovely Kaylin Ford, who has joined us uh, remotely, as we're doing almost all of this remotely in these strange times, but uh, very excited to have you here. Kaylin, welcome to the show. The times are only strange insofar as you let them be strange. Like, how far away are you really, David? An hour and a half, it's true. Wait, we <laughs> but Zach is like... I am very far away. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm very, very far away. <laughs> Canada is a big country. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Kaylin Ford is a very good friend of mine. Uh, she's been through some interesting times that we're going to talk about on this pop podcast. But I want to start by saying just how much I admire her, uh, the way that she relates to other people. I ran a campaign against her, and I guess it would have been 2018. 2018 2018 to 2019 and at the time I was not a big Kaylin Ford fan because I thought she was you know too close to the establishment and I've always been a bit of a rebel but over the years that we've got to know each other she's been very gracious in all things and is a very forgiving person uh and also just uh I think has a story that needs to be told and you're working on telling it in a variety of different ways that are awesome but um, I'll let you share a bit about your background, where you come from, what you love. And, you know, we haven't asked this in a while, but we need to get back into it. What do you love about Canada? Oh, man. Okay, you just threw a lot of questions at me. Um, <laughs> what's my background? So the context in which you and I met, I'm just going to start here, is that I was running as a candidate in the 2019 provincial election in Alberta as a candidate for the United Conservative Party. And you know, before your audience judges me too harshly for that, I'm not a natural politician. Um, but there's a lot of things about politics that I think, like many people, I find very off-putting. I mean, I'm bad at communicating in slogans and sound bites, and I don't like pretending that complex issues are reducible to sort of black and white, simple moral equations. I hate viewing people in utilitarian terms, which is very much what a lot of politicians do, right? You see people oh, as prospective voters and donors and um, not as human beings. And as a consequence of that, you know, you a lot of politicians have a propensity to slip into sort of, they talk to people using rhetoric, right? They, they try to flatter them, please them, anger them, whatever, so that they might then use them for their own purposes. And I just, I'm allergic to doing that. Um, I'm also a very unreliable partisan. Um, you know, I, uh, I <laughs> yeah, you're just going to do what you think is right, regardless okay, of yeah, how, exactly. What yeah. I'm very, very bad at like towing someone else's line, um, and prefer to follow the dictates of my own conscience. So, had I been elected, I would have like I would have died on the first hill that I came to. Um, as it turned out, I didn't make it that far. Um, but yeah, you were running a candidate against me in a very bizarre nomination race. Um, that's its own story. We might get yeah, into it. Absolutely, yeah. But, uh, but ultimately, I, I won the nomination race and was the candidate in a traditionally kind of like left center constituency in inner city Calgary. And uh, but I was on track to win. Um, and I think that's just you know the I think the the particular kind of conservative vision that I was putting forward is one that's resonant with a lot of people who may in fact be small c conservatives, but just you know, had never been exposed to real conservative thought. And so 
you know, instinctively identified as as people of the left. Um, those are my voters, and um, and it was it was wonderful having a chance to connect with people and um, sort of help them see that there is a different vision of conservatism than this kind of weird, corrupted, like neoliberal thing that gets passed off as conservative. Um, but then on the uh, about 29 days before the election, um, there is an organization called Press Progress. It's a project. They call themselves a project of the Broadbent Institute. The Broadbent Institute is named after basically them. a propaganda arm of the NDP. <laughs> basically, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I characterize them as like they're the opposition research mill and publisher for the NDP. They'll put out stories about people that wouldn't normally pass muster with ordinary media, but then the NDP can promote them and sort of force them into the mainstream conversation. And that's what they did here. They, on the eve of the writ drops, so right before the kind of critical election period began, they published a story based on an anonymous accusation saying that I had echoed white nationalist rhetoric in a private conversation years before. They didn't produce the actual record of that conversation, and no one has in the intervening three years because it doesn't exist anymore. So no one was able to actually independently scrutinize it, figure out the context, or see how they had actually edited the things that I purportedly wrote in that conversation. Um, and uh, within four hours, um, the United Conservative Party made the decision that in the heat of an election campaign, they couldn't afford to risk you know, one or two or however many news cycles trying to explain or defend against these allegations. And so I was uh, put in a position where I had to resign my candidacy. And, you know, I think from the party's perspective, they expect that like, well, now you're gone. We don't have to worry about you, right? We can kind of wash our hands of you. But, um, you know, for me, that was just the beginning of what's been a kind of, you know, very protracted, often quite horrible experience. Because, you know, in resigning, that was seen as an admission of culpability. And for a month, I had become, I became a sort of like trotted out on pretty much daily in the local and the national press as an example of, you know, a sort of horrific white supremacist who slipped through vetting um, and, uh, you know, never should have been allowed on the ballot. It was like, you know, front page newspapers, articles about how I'm an exemplification of the sort of moral failings of conservatism. Um, you know, the Toronto Star ran like 16 different publications saying that I promote white supremacy. The CBC ran a headline basically calling me a white supremacist. Um, and, uh, and by the end of that, um, you know, they, uh, lots of people had become terrified of even being publicly associated with me, of being seen in public with me, of, um, you know, I was told by numerous media editors, columnists and reporters that they knew this narrative was untrue, but they were afraid of being targeted if they tried to defend me um, and not without reason. Uh, that actually did happen to one, uh, one media uh, personality who was viciously attacked and sort of targeted with like a boycott campaign. And they threatened to go after her advertisers on her show. And just because she interviewed me and, and let me tell my story. Um, and that interview was ultimately pulled off the air. Uh, so um, yeah, so I was sort of, I felt as if I had been turned into a sort of, um, turned into a sort of ghost. Right, like I, it was just an absolute social murder. Uh, employers wouldn't look at me. It was, uh, took me th almost three years to be able to find 
even temporary employment, not in my field. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of like a, that's a very, very high level version. Um, but there's a lot that we could, we could drill down to, in, into within that about, you know, what are the sort of, what are the underlying causes that allow this kind of thing to happen? There is an unbelievable amount of stuff to unpack in that. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase you poorly, but there's something you said right at the beginning that I kind of want to start at because I think it's an interesting thing. You said, um, so you, UCP, you were gunning for a slightly left of center spot in Calgary, right? Um, and you said that your voters were kind of people who didn't necessarily understand small C conservatism, um, people who didn't understand actual conservative ideas. Um, I think that misunderstanding goes both directions. I read an incredible book. So I, I mean, brief background, I, my whole family has been conservative my entire life. I grew up conservative, right? So I just always imagined myself as a conservative. And then I read Dave Rubin's book, Don't Burn This Book, about classical liberalism. And pretty much everything that I came across in that book, I was like, holy shit, like I resonate with that. That's like, that's pretty much how I think and feel. And there's small things that we may disagree on, but really we're vastly on the same page. I think that goes both directions. So why don't you take a moment to try to put into a few words, and I know that you don't like the short bits, and I know, I know, I know you already said that, but to you, <laughs> what is the small C conservative idea? What is that to you? What does it represent? Oh, man. <laughs> now we're going to have an hour and a half long podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll have an hour and a half long podcast of me like tearing into classical liberalism. Um, Ooh, interesting. <laughs> yes, he's not a classical liberal. <laughs> interesting. Okay. Conservatism is... Um, Hmm, okay. I think one of the core tenets of conservatism and what should define conservatism in the 21st century is a commitment to keeping humanity human. Mm. Um, conservatism is about, it's, it, it's rooted in an understanding that truth exists and that the project of politics is to try to apprehend as much as possible the nature of reality, of what's true, of what's good and just and beautiful, and to try to orient ourselves towards those things. This is why conservatism, you know, obviously going back many millennia, these categories didn't exist as such, but the sort of the, the originators of what I would call a conservative intellectual tradition in the West, at least, would be it's Plato and Aristotle. Um, it is this this attempt to understand the kind of the metaphysical order ground of being and to live in accord with it and to order our politics in such a way that it reflects that underlying order. And I think the sort of progressive or liberal project, very broadly speaking, and most and sort of all kind of utopian disasters, that afflicted us in the 20th century and beyond, and earlier, if you go back to the French Revolution, for example, were attempts to a deny that there is a sort of an underlying source of being, um, to deny that truth exists as a real and eternal and objective fact, um, to deny that there is a moral order that stands above us and by which we can be judged. 
um, and it's an attempt to remake reality. So one of the ways that I would define that contrast, to, to paraphrase Eric Vogelin, is that philosophy, true philosophy, right, like the love of wisdom, it's, it's man's loving endeavor to perceive the order of being and attune himself to it. Whereas the sort of what he would call a kind of Gnostic disposition, let's just call it an ideological project, would be to achieve dominion over being and to try to remake it. And I think that's what a lot of liberalism is. It's trying to cast off all of the limits that are imposed on us, imposed on us by nature, not to understand them, not to try to attune ourselves to them, to sublimate our natures uh, in a way that aligns with them, but to try to destroy limitations, nature, human and otherwise, uh, in an attempt to remake the world according to some kind of abstracted ideological program. Yeah, let's, let's dig into this. This is awesome. <laughs> I want to dig into this. So when you're saying, because I couldn't agree more, um, and I have never articulated it that way to myself, so I want to dig into this a little bit. When you say to keep human human, keep humans human, let's go into that, because I think that is the crux of where we're at in the zeitgeist right now. There's an entire movement, one way and an entire movement the other. Yes, so yeah, yeah, the 21st century, like, again, like, it, it, this would be if I, God forbid I should ever run for politics again, but if I did, like this would be the campaign slogan, keep humanity human, because I think the forces that we're up against are, uh, I mean, they manifest in a variety of different ways. Some people called it like the machine, um, that there is a kind of machine that destroys all kind of traditional inherited ways of living, you know, patterns and modes of life, cultures, relationships, um, and tries to supplant them and, and overtake them with something that's very much unnatural and artificial. Um, there's, you know, the, the transhumanist movement and its various iterations, which seek very much to destroy something that's essential to human nature. Um, I mean, many of the COVID measures that were adopted, in my view, I, I sort of, you know, insofar as we have to sometimes rely on heuristics to guide our judgments about things, my heuristic, again, is like what, what promotes humanity and what degrades it. And, um, you know, forced masking of children for eight hours a day and isolating people and telling them not to make human contact and to hang out on Zoom and stare into a screen all day. So like, this is my heuristic. I'm like, this is bad. Yes. This, this yeah. is machine logic. And it, and it takes away, you know, the sort of the ritual, the intimacy, the human contact that, that makes us what we are. So, um, yes, this is the, uh, can you can you articulate a little bit more of what you mean of by what it means to be human? Because and I'll, I'll give a very short what I would say it means to be human. It, it means to understand your relationship with reality, like you said, which is a conservative principle. And what is reality? You are a biological being, period. Right? Which means um, you are not a machine. No biological being has been a machine, right? So like... And not period as in that's all you are, but that is how you align with reality most closely is understanding that somehow you are a piece of biology that has become conscious. We don't know all the answers to that in the sense of knowing, but we've been, we have a lot of really good stories, I think, that give us by and large the capital T truth of what that is, which is being a Mago Day, the image of God. And you said earlier, denying that there's a source of being that I want to dig into that but but 
before I do, what does it mean to be human? Um, well, I think you, yeah, you, you, you saved yourself a little bit by hedging um, when you said that we're not only biological beings, no, but yeah. that's an important part because you know, certainly, you know, a lot of the kind of, um, this is where the, the, the label, the Gnostic label makes a little bit of sense. It's not perfect, but it makes some sense in some ways in that one of these kind of transhumanist aspirations is, is this idea that we can actually just disregard the embodied nature of existence that we are really just, you know, sort of brains or something. Like and you see this in extreme form in the idea that like we can just upload our consciousness to a computer and live forever and achieve immortality. It's, um, but there is definitely a sort of a rebellion against natural limitations, including biology. Um, and the idea that our biology is some totally fungible plastic thing that we can manipulate or disregard or pretend it doesn't exist. So, you know, very much so we need to be maintain a ground in the fact that we are actually embodied creatures, but we are not just bodies. And that's another problem that you can slip into is if you start thinking that we are purely biological material sort of meat sacks, um, well then that's also deeply dehumanizing. We are embodied souls. Um, and I think one of the problems that, that I have with, the, um, with a lot of contemporary conservatism because it's not conservative, it's it's I think more accurately this sort of weird um, neoliberal thing, as I said, is um, is that it rejects it. It's sort of how do I put this? We could get into a long digression here, should we? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, this is how this is supposed to be. Yes. <laughs> like, Again, and I'm being really like I'm oversimplifying this enormously. When I talk about liberalism, obviously there are many different sort of strands of liberalism and different theorists who don't all agree on these things. But if you go back to the the origins of liberalism, it emerged in part out of the fact that Europe had been um, torn apart by sectarian conflict for you know decades or centuries. And one of the ways of trying to uh, one of the responses to that. And one of the responses to the fact that nation states were consolidating and, and were amassing a greater power to intercede in and infringe on the rights of individuals was, was liberalism, was the idea of negative rights, and also the idea of disentangling theology from the state. Yeah. Right? Like this, this seemed to be the source of so much sectarian conflict. Um, and if you sort of start to just sort of disaggregate those and say that these belong in their own respective spheres. And as these ideas were passed down to us over the last couple centuries, it turns into this, this idea that, you know, these questions of the soul, of religion, these don't properly belong in politics. These are questions that belong exclusively in the private sphere, if anywhere. And the only real, because we can't agree on everything, right? We can't all agree on what's good, on, you know, what are the ultimate ends of human life, on questions of ultimate concern. So we're just going to sort of put those all to the side like shove them into the private sphere. And the public sphere can only then be concerned with like objective reality, with biological needs, with wealth, or, or well, I should say with- With the distribution life, of With life, liberty, and prosperity. With yeah. like biological life, negative rights as liberty and money. And that's, that. the idea is sort of, those are the only things that legitimately belong in the public sphere. And this is insane. You can't actually sustain a polity when you have said that questions of ultimate concern, the questions that actually matter to human life, don't belong in the public sphere anymore.
when you say, when you give up on trying to adjudicate what's good or just or true, because there might be some disagreement, um, you lose the means by which, as a society, people are capable of adjudicating any moral disputes, apprehending the nature of reality. Um, and it kind of worked for a while because we were still running on the fumes, the sort of residual capital of a Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, a lot of these assumptions about human life and about goodness remained with us, but they've decayed. Um, we've become a very irreligious society, and so we've lost the ability to navigate reality together. We've lost even the moral language to talk about it. And what happens when you don't have any source of, I'm sort of riffing a little bit on Alistair McIntyre here in After Virtue, is if you can't agree collectively that there's something, that there's goodness that exists, that there's like, you know, a form of the good, um, or that justice exists as an objective fact. If you can't agree that these things are real and that those are the standards against which we should judge what's right and wrong, true and false, just and unjust, well, then what are you left with? Raw power. It just You're left with might makes right. You know, the, exactly. the strong do what they will, the weak do what they must. Yes, yeah. Um, and that can bring us back into a conversation about cancel culture, I think. Yeah, I want to go, uh, exactly, yeah, let's win that, that's a great segue. This like, is art, you know, art, Kaylin. <laughs> yeah, I think a simple definition of cancel culture is it's an incapacity to think, to reason clearly in moral terms. Um, cancel culture is not about persuasion, it's not about truth, it's not about justice, it's not about right. It is about using or misusing words and rhetoric to achieve power and to assert your power over others, to determine what you're allowed to think, what you're allowed to say, who you're allowed to support, who you're allowed to be friends with. And it's a complete inversion of what we would traditionally consider to be actual human virtues. You know, actual virtues, things like charity, you know, a slow, slowness to judge or to condemn, generosity in interpreting the motives, the ideas of others, a commitment to seeking what's true, to doing what's right, to standing up for our friends, like courage, all of these things are utterly suffocated in the climate of cancel culture. They're actively deterred. The things that are rewarded are people who rush to judgment, to condemnation, um, who are the most sort of fierce in their mischaracterizations of others, um, who sort of are act angry and shrill and perform their anger and their shrillness and their, their lack of generosity. These are what's rewarded and cowardice is rewarded by cancel culture. So cowardice is, is the currency of cancel culture. Exactly. Yeah. It's the only way it works is through like, it's a, it's a preference falsification machine that runs on uh, and, and would be completely ineffective were it not for, uh, you know, sort of systematic cravenness, but um, yes. It was a long. No, do you do you have? Go Zach. Do you have um, man? When you listed that list of virtues, like real virtues, I got like the most warm, fuzzy feeling because we as a society have forgotten so many of those, right? Do you have any thoughts um, regarding? what the cancer might be that led us in that direction? Like, how have we arrived in this place where the polar opposite of those good virtues are what are rewarded in our society? I, well, I, I think partly it, it is very much that we just live in a time when 
our moral categories have been completely inverted and we've lost the vocabulary with which to talk about them. If you as a politician in the public sphere tried to speak earnestly about the idea of virtue, the idea of truth, about the importance of the soul, you would be laughed down. Um, and people would say things like, who's truth? You know, um, it, it was, it was, it's just this sort of this empire of subjectivity. Um, so, so the consequence of that is that um, we no longer believe that there actually are these standards and, you know, we don't, we can't agree on, um, you know, even something so simple as, you know, do human beings have souls? What is the ultimate purpose of our life? What are the ends towards which we're headed? Um, so that, that's my diagnosis is that we have um, degraded these concepts and lost any coherent moral vocabulary by which we might navigate reality. And, you know, I, I found this interesting when I was canceled that the, some of the few people who would try to defend me publicly, their only defense would be, well, Kalen's not a racist, which is true. I'm not racist. Um, I think racism is a, is a profound moral failing. Um, but, but I found it interesting that, that the only terms on which people could defend me were, well, it were negative. Yeah. Right. So like, there's no accounting. There was well, no, it, this is actually who Kaylin is. It was only, she's not those things you say instead of testimony of, no, this is my friend Kaylin and this is what I know of her. Well, yeah, that's right. It, it's, how do I put it? I, I think normally when, how should we judge people? We should judge people by their inner virtues. Right. Um, and we can't, but we don't seem to have the ability to do that very effectively to say, you know, what is the actual good that this person has done in the world? How do they actually treat people? Are they kind? Are they fair? Are they magnanimous? Are they forgiving? Instead, we can only judge right and wrong, it seems, by does this person hold the correct opinions on social issues? Correct being usually whatever the current progressive orthodoxy is, and it changes all the time, which is how okay. you know that. Hold it's that not thought right. for a moment because I <laughs> want to go into that. Yeah. Is that different than it's ever been? Right? Because humans have always been, and I always make a major distinction between religious and faith based, right? Because mm -hmm. religion is a set of rules and social norms and rituals and practices that are agreed upon by a group. And faith is a belief in the source, let's call it, whatever that might be. Now, let's look at um, Galileo during his lifetime, right? He's, his views are heretical and he can't even express them because the orthodoxies of the day say that those are unacceptable views held by a fringe minority, one might say, right? Similarly, um, we now live in an orthodoxy of whatever this woke culture, that's the religion of the day, right? And being a heretic of that religion is, well, for people like me, it doesn't matter, but for people who have a lot of vectors of, of attack on their lives, right? They're, they can be ruined by these, this religion. And they, and they frequently are, you were, you were to a degree, right? So is it any different than it's ever been? Is it, or is this, think of the Salem witch trials, Right, like um, McCarthyism in the states back in the day. There are it's, it's is, totally is true human herd mentality. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, look, the, the, yeah, there's, there's really, there's nothing new under the sun, right? The scapegoating mechanism has always existed. The intolerance of minorities has always existed, right? Like there's no human society that has been able to ever maintain actual pluralism. There's always a hegemonic um, sort of or a dominant cognitive system and value system. It has to be that way. Um, it's just, it's the only way that you preserve an equilibrium, but and it's also true that every human society has policed the boundaries of speech and has used shame in various ways to enforce those boundaries, right? So when people say that cancel culture is, is nothing new, like it has new, there's new mediums by which, or media by which it's promulgated, that's kind of true um, in the sense that, yeah, there's never been unfettered speech. Um, you know, there are, there are certainly ideas for which people would be canceled throughout history. But what's interesting is to think about, um, well, one, one area where cancel culture differs from the traditional enforcement of social norms is that it's not about existing, it, it's not about enforcing existing social norms. Cancel culture is a tool to coercively shift the right. Overton right. window. That's a really good, of, go like, dig into that. Dig coercive that. or process of intimidation. So, right, like an existing social norm is there is a norm against you know, pedophilia, right? A person who promotes pedophilia might be canceled and fired from their jobs. That's that's the enforcement of a long-standing, well-established, inherited norm. Cancel culture is, you know, you say something, you think something, you observe something true that wasn't controversial at all until like last week, and now you're out of a job and you didn't, and you know, the the earth has sort of shifted beneath you. And now a very vocal minority is basically saying that, no, you're no longer allowed to even discuss or think or ask these questions. And we're going to drive you out of a job if you do. So that's one distinction. Um, but back to your point about, you know, wasn't it always this way? Um, I don't think it's, it's the, there's something deeper here um, about the way that in progressivism, inner virtues are completely irrelevant. And the only the only moral criterion they have is, does this person agree with me or not? Um, and I think that there's a deep reason for that. And again, I'm uh, you'll forgive me, I'm borrowing very liberally from a Foglinian framework here. Um, again, sort of classically, when we look at the world and we see that it's rife with suffering and iniquity and seeming, you know, and, and pain, a lot of religious traditions would have a way of accounting for that that says that this owes to something within us that is corrupt, that doesn't align with the Tao, yeah. that we have karma, that we are fallen, that, you know, human beings have sin and we suffer on account of that. And, you know, we're limited in our knowledge and our insight and our wisdom and we have selfishness and so this is why we suffer and the um the kind of progressive ideologues what what Vogelin would call like prusiastic gnosticism um they would reject that premise they would say that no we suffer because the order of being the ordering of the universe is wrong it's corrupt the yeah. systems are wrong yes. right um, it's not you. It's not you that's bad. You don't have to do the hard work of introspection of trying to like of you know seeking moral rectitude. Don't worry about that. You just have to overthrow the system, and then remake it. And you know this is a very alluring 
thing to tell people that you can be a good person just by standing on the right side of this ideological line. You don't have to do the hard work of trying to make yourself a better person. Um, you just have to hold the right opinions and police the opinions of others. And then you will be making the world a better place. And that's, I think, what, what is driving, drives this kind of fanatic cancel culture. It's people who are, um, I mean, I've, I've now had an opportunity to question a number of people in these in discovery. And while I can't talk about what I've gleaned from that, but um, these are very unpleasant people and who are nonetheless utterly convinced that they're on the right side of history and that anything they do to their opponents, however deceptive or cruel or malicious is justified by the fact that they think their cause is good. Mm -hmm. So I've been one of those people, right? Uh, I've been an ideologue, not on the, the other side, but on, on the conservative side, let's call it the, uh, they call us stormtroopers and Harper's PMO, whatever you want to call you're, us. We, you're a sort of end, it means justify the ends. I was, I, well, I, was, I, was, I, believed, I believed that you could remake the system. Ah, okay. I believed that the system could be perfected and that and I, I still do in a sense that I still believe that there are, is a way that is right and a way that is wrong. There is a, this is the way and then there's a way to live that will make you happier and healthier and better. And there's a way to live that will make you unhealthy and sad and wrong. However, I've always believed that it was not the government's place to tell me which of those ways to go, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, which I don't know if that's a liberalism. It's more of a libertarianism. You and I have kind of talked about this. It's definitely not Burkean. Now, how does that fit into the framework? How does individual freedom fit into this framework of having an agreed upon worldview, let's call it, right? Because what, what we're talking about is conservatism is saying that there is truth, there is objective truth, and our job is to go towards it. I couldn't agree more. This is the way, right? What, what is the way? The way is to pursue truth. The way is to pursue reality, because the closer you are attuned to those things, the happier your life will be. Yeah, well, and, and to live virtuously, right? Well, yes, yes. Well, I mean, but you can't really live... Happiness is just the movement of the soul in accord with virtue. <laughs> good, I like that. That's really a good quote. I think, well, I think well, that's... I am, I am misquoting Aristotle, so don't... <laughs> <laughs> but, but going further on that, you know, there's going to be a lot of pushback from people who are like, well, I don't want... To believe what other people believe because other people are idiots right um how do you and I, and I actually agree with your assessment of the, the dichotomy between the system can be perfected and the individual needs to be redeemed which are two incredibly different stories right and i'm definitely on the individual needs to be redeemed side of the equation yeah. however there is a, a there are better and, and worse systems yeah right yeah, I agree. Why? I think I don't think the systems can be perfected, no. but I think that you can have systems that are somewhat better, that are more aligned with, that are more aligned with reality, um, that you know follow the Tao more closely than others, and I think those systems will enjoy greater longevity because they accord with what's true. So would um, you say that? Well, what would you say uh, the Romans were on to? that gave theirs such longevity and success as opposed to, let's call it Western civilization under the American homogeny, which seems to be crumbling in less than a century. Oh, I don't feel qualified to speak to 
what allowed the Roman Empire to succeed at a like metaphysical level. <laughs> okay, I'll speak to that later. But, but um, um, no, I mean, but like, but but for example, you could one could easily draw the comparison of what gave the American Revolution uh, and the resulting system more longevity than the French. And it's that the founders in the American case were not trying to like remake society based on their. In the French Revolution, it was just an attempt to remake society based on these purely abstracted ideas of liberty and equality and fraternity um, by completely trying to remake human nature and um, and it turned bloody very quickly um, and crumbled in on itself. Whereas I think the American founders too, you know, they're obviously taking inspiration from those ideas, but they're not trying to like rip out, you know, a, a moral uh, or religious inheritance root and branch, and they're actually trying to format their institutions in a way that takes account of human nature and tries to work with it. And so I, it's a system that enjoyed comparatively more longevity, but also had, you know, but but is also imperfect. So Well, as all, I, I mean, this is where I want to go back to, we're not machines, we're agricultural products, right? In the sense that... Um... Kind of agricultural products. <laughs> we're animals. But, what, no, no, what I mean is like, <laughs> sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. This is, this is a ridiculous conversation. No, um, <laughs> um, I don't think it's a coincidence that so much of the language, both in English and in other traditions, I mean, the, in the East is the same thing, that so much of the language that we refer, that we use to talk about um, like the nurturing of the soul, the cultivation of the human personality about education. Growth. It's it's all rooted in it's the imagery of agriculture. Rooted. <laughs> human beings actually, human beings like plants, need to be rooted in something, so that they might grow toward what's true and flourish and develop the fruits of their personalities and and then perpetuate. And you know we've now, I'm going to take this into another track. Um, we have largely severed our roots to the past. We've kind of uprooted ourselves. This is another problem with liberalism. So liberalism, again, as it's kind of been passed down to us, this idea that like, no, you know, I'm not going to commit to any particular form. I don't have any intrinsic teleological end that I should be oriented toward. I should be free of all attachment um, and, you know, involuntary compacts and sort of be able to just drift around autonomously. And the image that that evokes to me is of like a seed that has failed to take root and imagines itself to be free because it's like floating around. It's not stuck in place. It's not bound to any tradition or trajectory that its nature would dictate. And it thinks it's free, but it's actually but not. <laughs> it's actually, well, but it's not. And, and I think the, the analogy works at a few different levels is the sort of the person, the product of late liberalism who has no roots in reality um, who's not able to be nurtured through the wisdom of the past because they have severed their connections to tradition and to the to all of the inheritance that that it uh, you know, should leave to us. Um, they're sort of free floating through the world with minimal attachments, obligations, social duties, connections to others, and they think that that's freedom. They're like, I'm autonomous. I can make any choice I want. But the truth is, if you have no ground, if you have no roots in reality, if you have no deep social connections no obligations, no duties, you actually have very little control over your destiny. You know, the seed can be like, it doesn't have control over whether it's swept about by the winds or the tides, if it's, you know, eaten by a bird or crushed underfoot. The, the rootless person is the most easy to control. And that's why every totalitarian regime tries to produce social conditions where people are completely rootless 
right? Like literally often starting the calendar again at year one, denying yeah. history, repudiating a tradition, um, severing social connections, the mediating institutions, destroying faith, destroying religion, so that people have no roots in the order of being and can be turned into whatever the state wants to turn them into. So this is my one of my big problems with liberalism is that it creates con conditions that are perfectly conducive to absolute tyranny and totalitarianism. And that conservatism, therefore, is one that should be focused on you know, helping people develop their roots in reality, um, their connections to the past so that they might draw on that wisdom, not be constrained by it, but so that it might nurture their personalities. And, um, and then they can actually flourish um, and they can produce fruits, like literal. Go <laughs> um, <laughs> be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. Why do we have a like? Why do we have a fertility crisis? Maybe it's because we've cut off our roots. You think a being with no roots can can produce anything? Produce fruit. Yeah. Yeah. You've, yeah. You've you've severed your ability to connect with past and and future. You actually you need both. So how did we get here? Uh, it doesn't matter. Or Zach. Zach. So, Zach so have, you, sort of... have you have you started your book yet, or what? <laughs> oh yeah, she's got a great blog. Can you can you? Uh, can you I'm almost me? thinking, Kaylin. I'm not, I'm seriously thinking. I don't know if Zach would agree with this, but we need to start a Kaylin Ford series of like the truth of the universe. <laughs> you, you see the problem that I have, Zach, in writing a book. It's like I have a very undisciplined mind that sort of flits from one subject to another, and it's there is a kind of there is a unity in these ideas, but like. Um. <laughs> but don't don't undercount your brilliance. You are a brilliant person. My goodness. Um, the most important I'm thing actually, I've I'm gleaned. Actually, I'm very very simple. <laughs> the most important thing I've gleaned thus far from this conversation is the idea of deciding that there is objective truth and the value that that holds. Do you want to go into that a little bit more? Yeah, and, and so one of the, the the challenges that people will say if you assert that there's an objective truth. Um, is that they'll say, well, you know, but my truth's different from your truth. And and um, the way that I understand this is there is an objective. I mean, there there is a, we live in a created universe that reality is given to us, that it's governed by laws that are true and just and beautiful. And, um, but that we will never fully apprehend that truth. It's just far beyond our, our ken or our reckoning. And so we have to approach it, the idea of truth, seek, seeking truth with utmost humility um, and with an understanding that there may be different approaches to it and that it might manifest differently in, in different contexts or environments, but that it nonetheless exists. And um, you know, this is the, the roots of the word philosophy as compared to you know, gnosis. You know, gnosis is knowledge. And this is why Vogelin uses the term to refer to um, so many modern ideological projects is that they they have this hubristic belief that mankind through mostly through our kind of mundane scientific techniques can achieve mastery and you know full knowledge of being and then reorder it and you know the alternative approach when you talk about philosophy that doesn't include any claim to be able to possess knowledge philosophy means it means the love of wisdom it's a kind of you're like you know, it's an erotic orientation toward what is true, knowing that you will never fully grasp it. Well, it's a phileo orientation, which is you can, of, yeah, like, you because can turn philosophy forward. is phileo, not 
erotic, wouldn't it be? Not eros. It's not, it, but but there is, it is, uh, in a true sense, I think there is, there is, it is an erotic, that's eros, is what it's a desire. Is. Yeah, it's a desire. It's a desire. Yeah, yeah. It's love for, yeah. it's longing for, right? Yeah, longing yeah. for truth, longing yeah. for that. So, so the conservative disposition to me is one of it's deep. I actually used I used to put this on campaign materials because um, I was I was like that. But that a conservative disposition is one of intellectual humility, not hubris. Mm -hmm. It's and and that's the way that we and that you know that should inform the approach to everything is that we should be seeking truth using that as sort of the way that we orient ourselves, um, but knowing that as human beings, as sort of, you know, fallen creatures, however you want to put it, um, our, our knowledge, our wisdom, our insights are always going to be limited. And so we should walk very sort of tread very carefully through the world with that understanding and with a level of deference and gratitude and respect for the order of being. Well, at the same time as understanding, I think that it is going to be that that love of truth that perhaps pulls us out of this mess that we're in because if we as a society can aim ourselves at truth again, well, that's the roots, right? And we were talking earlier about um, fixing the system or fixing the person. Well, I think if you do it correctly, you can do both at the same time because the person builds the system. So if you root the person in the truth that and that person chases that truth honestly with humility, then the systems get better. Absolutely. So this is why states have a legitimate interest in soulcraft, because, you know, statecraft is soulcraft. Who wrote it that? It is. And and they're and they're mutually reinforcing, right? You, um, the the you know the, this polic. I think this idea that politics is sort of it's the soul of man writ large, right? Or society rather is the is the soul of man writ large. You're not going to have a free society if it's comprised of individuals whose souls are intemperate, vicious, violent, um, you know, like enslaved to passions. You're not going to preserve any civil liberties if that's the population you're dealing with. Um, if you want to enjoy a state of civil liberties, then you have to be concerned about cultivating these qualities in people and making people who are capable of self-governance, of placing checks on their own appetites, of being, you know, prudent and magnanimous and um, you know, actually possessing the virtues that are that qualify them for the exercise of civil liberty. So that's that. I, that kind of goes to one of your your questions earlier, David. Is like your libertarian impulse says, I don't want the state telling me what to be, or what to do. Um, you know, I don't want the state telling me what to be or what to do because I think that we live in a pretty debased, corrupted society, and I think <laughs> the state's yes, yes. Cool. couldn't agree but, more. Um, but um, but a state that actually cares about um, you know, that basically that if you want to live in freedom with as little intervention from the state as possible, then you need to be concerned first and foremost with the cultivation of virtues, both your own and the kind of social virtues that allow you to live in cooperation with others. There's that personal responsibility theme again, eh, David? Well, I wanted to, I wanted to summarize. So, um, man, when Caleb speaks, it's just beautiful. It's like poetry, but for those who, who don't understand bad those, for those who don't understand the words that she's using i would say that there's a couple of ways that i look at this right is it's life isn't about being right it's about being less wrong that is a humble orientation to reality right it's, it's not 
seeking rightness. It's seeking to be less wrong. That is wisdom in my mind. But that's what Kaylin means when she describes a humble orientation versus a hubristic orientation to reality. Hubris, hubris is thinking you're right. Humility is knowing you're probably wrong and you just like to be less wrong, right? <laughs> um, when, when, when Caleb's talking about being rooted in truth and that kind of idea, all I would say that that really is is understanding that reality doesn't care. It's, it's what Shapiro says when he says facts don't care about your feelings, right? In the fact that reality doesn't really care how you want to mold it. Reality is just going to keep going forward because, as Kalen pointed out, there's truth and there's, you know, the way things work. There's laws, created laws to this universe that don't care about how you feel. Yeah. Now, from a social yeah, like with, with like with a cancel culture actually can, I think, succeed in manipulating language, in limiting what people are comfortable talking about and the questions they're comfortable asking. I mean, I think one of the tenets of modern progressivism is that like the prohibition on the asking of questions is a part of their dogma, right? So they they might actually, by using sort of fear and coercion and by changing the meaning of words, they might succeed at changing the social landscape. But the problem is the truth will still remain and it will have its vengeance on those who try to deny or suppress it ultimately. But you may it have just lose your ability to diagnose the problem because you've taken away the language by which people might describe reality. Yeah. So actually, all so I think a great example of this, just a really tangible example, is inflation. Right? You know, people can can pretend that they've come up with these idealistic system changing theories of how money works, but the truth is there are laws like supply and demand, and it doesn't matter how you shift it. If supply goes up and demand doesn't, then the value of the thing that's being supplied goes down. Yep. That's a, that is a law as sure as gravity. And now we're seeing it. Money's less valuable. Why? Because there's so much of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can try, you can use all sorts of social technologies and other technologies to try to delay uh, or offset for a time um, your denial of reality. But you're really, yes, it, it will come back um, and you will have to contend with it ultimately. It's, it's like, I, like it's, you know, any regime, like this is the connection that, you know, like Scholz and Issen draws between, I'm not going to be able to paraphrase him very well, but if you read his Harvard University address, um, he gets to this idea that, you know, lies can only be sustained through violence, through force. Um, not necessarily through violence in a conventional way, but right, like we can use our social technologies and and um, to try to force things to work a certain way, um, but you have to use a lot of force to deny reality. Yeah, it takes a lot of effort. It's way easier not to. And then going back to what you were saying about um, kind of like how we should view reality, right? One of the things I want to talk about and, and, and that we have to just reflect on the fact that we are souls encased in, in biological being. We're embodied souls. Yeah. Embodied souls. So thinking about that, a lot of women are coming to the realization they've been lied to by society. Yeah. Right? right? Oh, and they're like, they're 
they're hitting this 31 to 40 age group. Now you have, I believe, three children now? Two, two children. Two, sorry, sorry, two children. And you were running with young children because you believed that you needed to have for their sake. Can you, and you and I have talked about this and it's one of my favorite kind of riffs that you have. Why are we letting society lie to our women this way and ruining their, their alignment with reality and therefore their joy? It, it's really funny, like watching the left rediscover ancient social technologies. When re so we're getting back to this idea that like, no, the, the truth will always be there. I, I find it very funny watching the, it's sad funny, watching the, um, some of the abortion debate in the US and it obviously it trickles into Canada. Um, but some of the responses, anytime that people think that there might be more stringent legislated limits on abortion, there will invariably be people on the left who are like, well, fine, if women have to raise children, then maybe men should be forced to make a monetary commitment to them for life. And it's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're yeah, almost there. Like, you're close. <laughs> um, maybe it can also come with like a commitment to love and cherish for better or for worse, you know, richer and poorer. Um, we had a thing that did this and it was called marriage. And you, you used a kind of, you know, ultimately a violent technology, medical technology to try to deny that reality. Um, but you know, this is these these you know things like marriage, like the idea of commitment, of chastity, of chivalry, like these emerged in response. These are these are social technologies that developed in response to nature, to truth, to reality. And you know, technologies like abortion are sort of the opposite of that. They're attempts to deny reality and the consequences of you know biological processes through a violent or forceful act. Um, and um, Anyway, yes, to the question of society has lied to women. One of the biggest problems, yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, tr it's tragic that like there are doctors, there are people who've gone through med school, women who've gone through med school and who nonetheless believe because no one has ever told them otherwise that they can just start having children when they're 40. And they get there and, and it's tragic because they then realize that actually this is, this is immensely difficult. Um, even if you can get pregnant and carry a pregnancy to term and have no complications, like you're exhausted by 40. You can't pull all-nighters. Um, there's a reason you can pull all-nighters in your early 20s. That's when you should be having kids. Um, <laughs> I'm serious. Um, yeah, I know. I love it. That is like, I've never thought of that, but that is a perfect truth. It's yeah. a biological truth. Yeah. Um, no, but we, the other thing that we've lied to women about, and I think this, we're, there's going to be huge consequences of this, is women vastly outnumber men in post-secondary institutions now, right? Like it's like 60% or higher, you know, same only gonna get with graduate degrees and professional degrees, right? So women have climbed that ladder very effectively and attained far greater sociometric status than men. And we're sort of told, you know, like be the men you wanna marry, right? This is, this is an old feminist slogan. Um, the problem is women still wanna marry up. And there's good reason for that. Like I'm not, and I'm when I'm saying that I'm not. There's like, there are really misogynistic men who criticize women for this as though it's a failing. It's like it's absolutely not a failing. This is women should want to marry up, or at least horizontally, because you know the risks for them of coupling are far higher because they need you know the investment in a mate is a much more dangerous investment. They need to make it much more prudently. Women should be gatekeepers in that sense, um, and they should. And it's very normal that women should want to marry a man who can provide for them and provide them with security 
um, financial, physical, and otherwise. Um, but we've we told women that that wasn't true. But the fact remains, reality remains, that these women will not be satisfied marrying men who lack a university degree. And that marriages where women marry down, where they marry men who earn less than them, who are less educated than them, those marriages are much more unstable. They're far more likely to dissolve. So that this is one of the, like, this, and it relates to our kind of elite overproduction problem. It relates to a lot of things, but this is one of the lies we told women. We said, you know, go and be men. Um, but then when they start having children, you realize, actually, you kind of want men to be men. Um, <laughs> but where, but there are no men left. They're all boys well, now. Well, yeah, this is one of the problems is that we, you know, we made men obsolete and then the men are like, okay, then we'll be obsolete. Yeah, why, why take responsibility? We're not needed. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> it's, uh, oh, yeah. I love the way your mind works. Anyway. I, but like, could you, could you summarize though? It's like, the way that I look at it is it's, it's pretty simple. And it's, we are biologically different beings, men and women. Yeah. Right? And, and that means we have different biological desires. Yeah. Right? It doesn't mean that we have different value in the spiritual intrinsic sense of the word. Our dignity is equal, right? We yeah. are equally dignified before the source, before God, whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. The creator made us all. However, what will make us happy is a proper alignment with reality. What was it you said? Can you say that quote again? Uh, the Aristotle one about aligning yourself with the, the, the happiness, happiness is the movement of the soul toward virtue or something like that. Yeah, happiness is the movement of the soul towards virtue, which is ultimately the movement of the soul towards truth, which is ultimately the view, or sorry, the movement of the soul to reality, right? Well, if you don't admit the fact that your body wants to reproduce, that that is an inherent desire of your biology, that every one of your ancestors participated in or you wouldn't exist, then, how, then, then what are you doing? It doesn't mean you have to reproduce, but you have to admit to yourself that you want to, right? Yeah, well, and, and that actually, you know, this is another of these kind of like, yeah, and women, I think when, when you have kids as a woman is when you realize that you were lied to. And in my case, I grew up with, you know, well, when I completely, like, just as a kid, I rejected anything that was sort of feminine coded, like toys, clothes, right? A total, what we would call a tomboy when I was a kid. Um, people unfortunately would, would call it something different now with disastrous yeah. consequences, but you know, I identified with male characters in literature. Like I wasn't classically feminine and I was very unaware of my sex. I also like was aggressively ugly as a teenager. So, um, <laughs> so I never, I, like, I didn't deal with unwanted male attention. I was just, I was just not aware of myself as a woman. And I didn't think that my sex would hold me back in any way professionally. And I thought when I had kids that, you know, like my, my husband and I were very much, it's sort of an egalitarian relationship. And I thought we can just share roles. And then you realize like, no, you have a very distinct role as a mother that is very different from a role that a man can play. And, and I felt then that I had been lied to, that, um, that my expectations had, had been, yeah, very much thwarted. And, um, but anyway, but on the, on the question of sex, like, the duality is really what makes things interesting. And I, and I think part of the reason that I, I, I will speculate that part of the reason that young people are having sex less on the one hand, like 
great. You know, less sex before marriage is a good thing, but less sex altogether is maybe not a great thing. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, and, and I, and I've wondered sometimes if part of the reason why young people are less interested in sex is because we've flattened the interesting duality that comes from the interactions of men and women. Hmm. Like that's what makes things actually like interesting and exciting and intriguing and mysterious. And when you sort of flatten that and everyone's the same, it's just, it just loses the, it just loses something. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um, but there's a great book out called The Way of the Superior Man that talks about this from a masculine perspective. And he's very clear. He's like, masculine and feminine energies are not necessarily only biologically built. It's like you were saying how you were raised, you were more focused on the masculine energy, right? In the sense of, well, you were just more interested in the things that are typically masculine. That doesn't mean you are a man. No, it just no means there's, there's a are... natural distribution of these, yeah, of these curves. And Frankly, there's areas of overlap. And I, I was probably more feminine, I, right? I was into you were, poetry you were in a feminine and music and art and mute. Like, and I and you know what? I never once thought I'm a woman. <laughs> I was just like, I want, I was just like, I love beautiful things. Right. I love art and I like romance. And I like, I love Jane Eyre was one of my favorite books, right? Like, but but it was never enforced on me that because I liked things like that, that I was biologically different than I am yeah right it was always just like no that's just who you are and I can embrace that let's call it the feminine side of my personality and I do and I love it and with some of my best friends and I Jack's seen it our, our cousin Dan and I will just quote poetry back and forth to each other all the time oh come on that's such a but like that's not feminine that's, <laughs> well whatever people have oh, told like, me that man but if you if you work, like this is the biggest turn on for a woman if you want to attract women <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. The point, the point that I'm trying to make is the point that I'm trying to make is like roofing on roofing crews. I would get made fun of all the time for that, right? In in in, in, a, in a typically male-driven environment, I was gay or whatever, right? I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. But the point is, we've lost the understanding that the feminine and masculine is in each of us, and we lean one way or the other. Like you said sexuality is about and and this is recognized in the uh, lgbt community too right it's so recognized in in especially gay and lesbian relationships there has to be a masculine and feminine partner or it just there's no sex it just doesn't happen <laughs> right and it's like okay i so, lack insight into this but okay i'll take your word no i mean i've had great conversations with some of my best friends about this right and it just it's like we need to accept that that is the, the nature of reality, that sexuality is a duality between two, um, the, between the masculine and feminine. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think, you know, to just incorporate a little bit of casual Taoist cosmology, like you need the opposing forces of yin and yang in order to be generative and, and whole. And an individual possesses both of those right? You have the yin and the yang qualities and you, everyone does. Um, but a, a coupling also requires the yin and the yang. And in the context of a coupling, well, as an individual, you possess both of these. In the context of a coupling of men and women, you have one of them. These, yeah, these are, these are the roles that exist in that coupling. And that's what makes, allows it to be generative of new life. So um, yeah, it's not, that's this, this, this idea that there is a gender binary is stupid. Um, it's so stupid. 
but just but it, yeah but yeah you know the the reason like this is why I'm I've been very I think I started paying attention probably pretty early on to the the kind of transgender advocacy movement which is not representative of all trans people just to be clear I, you know I have I have friends who are trans and I you know they just sort of want to be left alone and um they're not crazy but um I started paying attention to that early on because I noticed that, you know, very much the profile of the people who are now identifying in very large numbers as gender dysphoric or trans, it's mostly pubescent girls. Yeah. And it's largely pubescent girls who are, many of them are on the autism spectrum. They don't fit in with their female peers necessarily. Um, obviously there's an element of social sort of social contagion too. And, and pubescent girls are the most susceptible to that of any group. Um, but um, yeah, it's a lot of girls who are sort of precocious, unconventional, not traditionally feminine, maybe suffering from comorbidities like anxiety and depression. And like, that was me at 10 years old. You know, I had like, I just had no classically feminine interests. I didn't conform to sort of gender stereotypes of what women or girls are supposed to like or be interested in. I thought makeup and, you know, like swooning over, you know, heartthrob teen boys was just the height of inanity. And, <laughs> and you know, and like sort of, you know, suffered an existential angst. And I've wondered if, if I was born 20 years later, would someone in my life have tried to persuade me that... The panacea, the solution to all of this was that I was born in the wrong body and I was really a boy and, you know, get me at the right age and I might've believed it and I would be sterilized and I would not have children today. And so that's one of my, the reasons why I think it's important. This is a controversial thing that a lot of people are afraid to talk about, but this is one of the areas where, you know, you have to be willing to stand on the side of truth here because the consequences of denying truth are going to be disastrous for a generation. They are, they are being, they are disastrous right now. Um, where we've reached beyond our time, uh, but I, I did want three things before you go. The first is I want you to share about this documentary, this upcoming documentary that you're making, uh, very short, but just a pitch on, on what's coming. Second is uh, you're in the middle of a large lawsuit against the mainstream media and other uh, other defendants, and I'd and we're looking to raise some money for that so that you can keep um, standing up for truth, frankly. Um, so I want you to mention that, and then I'll make a final pitch on that. And then finally, um, one piece of wisdom you'd like to leave listeners with. <laughs> you just invited me to get into it. <laughs> our conversations. The, doc the documentary it's yeah so i'm making um as a, one of my past lives before getting into politics was as a documentary filmmaker um and i made a couple films that related to topics of religious persecution censorship um totalitarian propaganda and mass persuasion in the context of china and china's system of forced labor and things like that and then after i was cancelled i you know and was jobless and no one would hire me and um and I thought, well, you know, maybe one day, to, one way to kind of redeem this experience um, and stay busy would be to make a documentary about cancel culture. And it's a very personal lens. And um, I tell people that it's kind of a, it's in some sense a, a re um, or a kind of a validation or a re reaffirmation of the Socratic position expressed in the Gorgas dialogue, because our, our politics today and the pathologies afflicting our politics today, I think are directly analogous to the kinds of 
problems that was confronting the Hellenistic world after the Peloponnesian War, uh, the climate in which Socrates was teaching and Plato writing, obviously. So um, read the Gorgas if you haven't. It's fantastic. And then one day, we're in post-production now, but it's it's a long <laughs> process. Always takes longer than you think. Um, we'll have a documentary on that. And then... Um, and the no, what's, what's it going to be called, Phelan? I don't or know. We have a working title, but it's a bad working title because it's... I kind of like it. I kind of like it. So, like so. the working title was canceled, but then anytime that you write that, you're like, oh, this, this, the documentary was canceled. Shoot. The screening was canceled. It's not going to work. <laughs> um, and then uh, the... It's also just... It's, it's a cliche now, right? When we, when we started, cancel culture was sort of... It's, it's overused now and misused yeah, now. The, and then the lawsuit. So I I grappled with it for some time, but ultimately decided to, that um, that it's important that these organizations and individuals who either knowingly or recklessly promulgated lies about me in order to destroy my political career, that there should be consequences for that. That words have to mean something. That you cannot casually call people racists and white supremacists for no reason. And that's what happened to me. And it's important, I think, that there be case law establishing that you cannot do that. You can't, you can't call someone a white supremacist for abjuring white supremacy. Words have to mean something. Otherwise, we lose any further means by which we can navigate reality as a society and live in, in cooperation with each other. So, so I filed like a, it's like a $7.65 million defamation claim against, among others, the Broadbent Institute, the CBC, Toronto Star, um, some NDP-affiliated PACs, the NDP itself. Um, and uh, you know, litigation is a very long process, and it's a very costly process. So things are moving well, um, but I've been self-financing this with, with a few different sort of private donations, um, but mostly self-financing it for the last nearly two years. And uh, so I finally reached a point where I could use some help. So I started a GoFundMe to help crowdsource some of the litigation. Uh, and, and for our listeners, uh, we all hate GoFundMe, I know, but- uh... There's other ways. <laughs> um, so I started a GoFundMe, but if you don't want to support GoFundMe for totally understandable reasons, um, on my website too, if you go to kaylinford.com or .ca slash donate, and you can also send e-transfers directly if you're in Canada or through Squarespace. Sorry, through- What's it called? Stripe through Stripe. Stripe right. yeah. And the final final thing here is uh, what's your and, and keep it short. What's your final piece of wisdom you'd like to leave everybody with? <laughs> um, I don't know, David. I mean, it's so it's also obvious. Just try to be good. That's all. Try mm. to be good. Just say that. <laughs> All right, thank you, Kaylin. Really enjoyed having you on. Uh, everyone, this documentary that Kaylin's coming out with, I've told everyone I'm starting a, starting a tour of uh, rural Alberta where we're going to be showing this so that people understand what's going on politically because uh, my commitment to all of my wonderful friends in Take Back Alberta and other organizations is that I will educate you on how the system works. And I think Kaylin taking this stand uh, both legally and uh, through her art, which is documentary filmmaking, um, is taking that stand. So I think we all need to support her in that. Uh, so thank you for doing that, Kaylin. Thank you for being my friend and for the wisdom you share with me and now the wisdom you're sharing with everybody else.
Thanks. It was weird and fun. <laughs> and uh, make sure you get started on that book, okay? I look forward to reading it. <laughs> oh, yeah, it started. Thanks, Zach. I need, to, I, need, I need reminders, yeah. Thank you, Kaylin. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Cad Story. That's The C-A-D Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great our country is.